I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome to episode 10 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Sean McMeekin's book, Stalin's War. It's going to be something of a review, something of a riff, and something of an anchor point, a starting point, to discuss some other fascinating corners of irregular warfare. First up, some housekeeping. A number of my audience members have gotten in touch with me as far as a book list because I say what books I've been reading, or I'll list a number of books I've been reading during the podcast, but I don't write them down anywhere. I am going to try to remedy that. Same listeners have said, when is a website coming up? Haven't gotten there yet, but I will. Uh, the Dash, my Stoicism podcast that I have, is officially an occasional podcast. I'd had this great ambition that, like Chasing Ghosts, I would be doing it fortnightly, but that is not the case. I'm doing my very best, uh, working my day job, taking care of my family, and all the rest of it, and still trying to put these out on a fortnightly basis. So I will continue doing that. Chasing Ghosts has caught the attention of some of my friends in the blogosphere and the interviewosphere, and that would be episode 249 with Prof. C.J. C.J. Kilmer at the Dangerous History Podcast. You can listen to that. On Friday, I just recorded a two-and-a-half-hour interview with Scott Horton of the Libertarian Institute and Antiwar.com. I'm looking forward to him publishing that. may happen this week or next. And again, to contact me, you can contact me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Let's get to the meat of the matter today. Sean McMeekin wrote this fascinating book, huge book, called Stalin's War. Now, my book consumption happens in a number of ways. It happens on my Kindle. It happens with real live books that Captain Kirk would appreciate holding in his hands and also listening to audiobooks. I listened to Stalin's War on audiobook, and I'm going to buy a copy of it, and I've done this with several audi other audiobooks that I've listened to, because they're so good, I can't wait to dig into the footnotes. What I really love about McMeekin's book is that he takes the case that Stalin not only was a far more major player in the World War conflict, from 1938 to 1945, but he also played a significant behind-the-scenes instrumentation behind the scenes, employing a regular war and employing a regular conflict, and we're going to take that apart today. So I want to remind everybody that when it comes to today's interpretation of events, we can't have the chronological conceit that just because we live in the year 2023, we're smarter than anybody who lived before us, whether it was 1976, 1876, or 1776. The reason I say that is this. 
In my early collegiate career, where I had the opportunity to go to a Northern California university, I managed to find myself going to a very collectivist government supremacist university called Humboldt State University in the far north, about 100 miles below the Oregon border on the coast. Fortunately, having just spent almost seven years in the Navy, and I don't regret my late entry into college because I think I was a better student as a result of that time that I spent in the Navy. But I found two Austrian economists hiding in the basement up there. That would be John Groby and Jacqueline Kasem. They have since gone on to their reward, but I will forever be indebted to them for stopping me and preventing me from getting the mind virus that one usually gets in colleges then and gets them hypertrophy today, which is there is a very masculine, hyper, hy, hy, just a hyper-masculine notion of collectivism, government supremacism, national socialism, socialism, and, and everything that happens with that, that makes people think that that is the way, best way to organize humanity. Those of us who, those of you who have listened to me in, in the previous nine podcasts, and maybe if you're new to this one, I'll give you a very quick sensibility. I think society should be based on individualism. I think that liberty and freedom should be maximized. And I think that most everything government touches planet-wide, east and west, it turns into a worse thing than it was when it was privatized and when it was in free men's hands. That being the case, I was fortunate also not only to be a student of Groby and Kaysen, but I did an internship down the Hoover Institution in Stanford, California. And I consider it one of the greatest gifts of all academically to have trained under, been mentored by, and coached by Robert Conquest, the, rate, the, late, the late great Kremlinologist and Sovietologist, who, despite running into collectivist and high communist headwinds at the time, was a tremendous skeptic of the Soviet Union and a tremendous skeptic of Stalin's will to power and all the awful, horrific, and murderous things that that regime did because you have to take yourself back in that hot tub time machine to the 1980s. And for every Robert Conquest, there's a hundred criminologists who are not only saying that he's all wet and describing Stalin as the really bad guy, Lenin as the really bad guy, and all of their successors in this sclerotic, arthritic, and murderous USSR, but that he's wrong. But it turns out that he was right. I mean, remember, this is the 1980s, where if you were pursuing economics or political economy, there were textbooks out there in the 1980s observing with eyes wide open the Soviet Union and other centrally planned economies and saying even then that they were superior to free market economics, they were superior to mixed economies, and they were superior in, in the delivery of products because they put it in the hands of rational central planners. Nothing could be farther from the truth, as every audience member in here knows, who looks at the world in a sober fashion. So when a professor like an academic like Sean McMeekin comes out with Stalin's war, and he knows where all the bodies are buried, he's got all the receipts, and he's done all the research, and he speaks Russian, and he speaks English, and he's gone through the archives, and he comes to the conclusion 
that not only were the Soviets helped tremendously by the Western Alliance, specifically the American Alliance, helped tremendously by Lend-Lease, helped tremendously by so many things, but this monstrous presence on planet Earth that would stand astride a good part of the planet after 1945 was aided, assisted, and came into being and was able to stay in the state of nature that it was as a re direct result of what the administration, the Roosevelt administration in this case, and Churchill in Great Britain did to ensure not only their survival, but their prospering. As much as communist countries can prosper, and we all know that that's the nomenclature that prospers in these countries. McMeekin's book is a doorstop, but well worth every page and every footnote. And he tells a story that is not commonly told and will certainly not be commonly told in the universities because the universities now, 30 years on from the end of the Soviet Union, still pine for it, still pine for the Soviet experiment. In academia in America, unfortunately, and this is starting to seep over even into the service academies, is very left of center. And because of that left of center myopia, they tend not to look at the warts, carbuncles, and bad skin that is on all communist enterprises, but try to make the very best of it. McMeekin does not. But I want to set the stage here. This is 1945, and you know where I've talked, some would say incessantly, about decanting and uncorking smaller conflicts out of larger conflicts that the opening of that Pandora's box allows to happen. So it's after 1945, America is on top of the world. The Soviet Union just so happens to be on top of the world, maybe not economically, but they certainly have the second best power on planet Earth. And of course, the Western nations on continental Europe are supine, and England is effectively bankrupt. Churchill is thrown out of office. It isn't until 1954 that the English stop food rationing. I think to a large extent, they can thank a lot of that dysfunction on their embrasure of, so, of uh, Fabian socialism at the turn of the century. And it percolated and cooked to the top where even Churchill became a fan. What I want to talk about here real quick is that after 1945, do any civil wars occur? Do, does any warfare occur? Do any other wars, sort of like almost tertiary vibrations from the earthquake that was these leftover tremors from what was World War II. World War II in August 1945 stops as a result of the dropping of the bomb on August 8th. By the way, the very next day, despite the fact that there was a neutrality rapprochement between the Japanese and the Russians, the Russians start a massive push into Manchuria and take Manchuria and literally wipe out the Japanese formations that are on the Chinese mainland. Because for the Chinese and for the Japanese, much to the misapprehension of the American public and the Western public, for instance, the Pacific War was a huge concern. It was a huge war combine. But from 1932 until 1944, the significant conflict for the Japanese other than the Pacific and that approaching American juggernaut on the seas was China. 
and a very large number of Japanese armies were invested in holding land in China. Well, that stopped in August and they were practically wiped out by the Russian juggernaut that shuffled to the coast. So what that means is that the war didn't stop in August 1945, and I'm going to offer you the following evidence. As you know, way back in episode one, under terms of endearment, I talked about the various taxonomic designations that we have for civil wars and regional war complexes and world wars and those kind of things. In this case, let's take a look at the civil wars that emerged between 1945 and 1960. We've got the Iran crisis, we've got the Greek Civil War, we've got the Paraguayan Civil War, we've got Palestine and Israel, we've got the Arab-Israeli conflict, we've got the Costa Rican Civil War. We even have, from 1947 to 1948, the Yosu Sushin and Jegu uprisings in Korea, a precursor to the war. We have La Valencia Civil War conflict in Colombia from 48 to 58 all the conflicts in Eastern Europe as the Soviet bloc put together its states that it had taken over wholesale. The Malayan emergency, Burma, which would become Myanmar, and Indian unrest to include the Pakistani eruptions, in this case, the pre-Pakistani eruptions, before Pakistan would break away from the northwestern provinces of India and become its own nation state altogether. These are civil wars. Then we have the colonial uprisings. And we have, by 1949, the British being left with rocks planet-wide. We have the French in the 1950s, as I just delineated in the past two episodes, losing both Indochina and Algeria in the same 10-year period of time from the late 40s into the 50s. What we have is we have almost a perfect storm of all these conflicts and again, I stipulate, these conflicts were uncorked, decanted, and displayed for all the world to see as a result of the larger overarching conflicts opening the Pandora's box so that these conflicts would come into play, these smaller ones. So that's sort of the backdrop to what's going on here with this. Because what Stalin's War by Sean McMeekin talks about is he talks about a kind of irregular warfare in addition, probably parallel to the conventional conflict that would lead to the Russians going into Berlin and meeting the American and Western powers there. And then, of course, the, the, war, the, the world is divided into a number of different camps after that. What I want to emphasize is that irregular warfare, it includes non-kinetic means also, such as political warfare, diplomatic subterfuge, espionage, lend-lease chicanery, economic warfare, any number of things that don't necessarily fit in the conventional warfare paradigm. Now, economic warfare in the conventional warfare paradigm would be strategic bombing. It would be targeting those things that are either civilian megalopolises that support the war effort of the antagonist state, or key industry that if that industry is neutralized or destroyed puts a big kink in the war effort of the antagonist and may bring the war to a close sooner than later. There are so many moments in McMeekin's book where we could do a show called Did You Know? 
Did you know, for instance, that because of that Japanese and Soviet neutrality pact that I talked about, operable until August 9th, 1945, U.S. airmen who found themselves, usually as a result of being shot down or losing their aircraft over China, if they landed in Russian space of any type or Russian contested space that was owned by the Russians, they were taken as POWs for the remainder of the war. POWs were American pilots, and they were POWs of an American ally. It stretches credulity, but that's a fact, and that's the way Stalin played this. So I want to read you some facts and figures from McMeekin's book that will absolutely blow your mind. This is Soviet Lend-Lease. Lend-Lease. 2,000 locomotives were given to the Russians by America. I use that term given in a very specific and technical fashion because they did not pay back what they should have. Whereas when you look at the British and their Lend-Lease, the British UK, the, I mean the United Kingdom, paid off their Lend-Lease in 2006. It was a, uh, I think it was a total of $10.8 billion then, which is equal to $200 billion today that was given to the Russians because the Russians never paid us back, paid the U.S. back. 2,000 locomotives. 93% of all railroad equipment to include yards, relays, all of that was American. 14,000 aircraft. They got Aero Cobras, which were probably one of the uh, more poor aircraft that America ever produced during World War II. Uh, America accounted for 5% of all wartime production. America gave the Russians 400,000 Jeeps, 8,000 tractors, 13,000 tanks. As a matter of fact, the T-34 suspension was designed by a U.S. engineer. 55% of their aluminum, 80% of their copper, 57% of their aviation fuel produced came from America. 35,000 radios, 32,000 motorcycles, 20,000 Katoysha MLRSs, with a Studebaker chassis, by the way, known as uh, Stalin's organ. 4.5 million tons of food, 1.5 million blankets, and 15 million pairs of boots. And it goes on and on in these exhaustive footnotes that McMeekin has put together. And you ask yourself, why is it that this part of the Russian war is so new to so many non-historians? And I would say new to some professional historians alike. Because when I look at, for instance, at David Glantz, who's probably one of the foremost serving military, serving army officer, David Glantz's books are probably some of the foremost granular examinations of the Russian order of battle and the Eastern Front between the Germans and the Russians. But to a certain extent, while he was able to apply through a military lens, a really brilliant rendering of just what happened on the Eastern Front, he never focused on where all that combat power came from, how those changes occurred, those kind of things. He does do a very good treatment of the transition of the Soviet Union from 41 to 43 and from 43 to 45, in which from 41 to 43, a very mediocre army across the board. From 43 to 45, as a result of talent at the flag level, uh, a strategic acuity that got more mature with time, 
they became a gargantuan war machine to be reckoned with that, of course, we know took its toll on the Germans to the point where the Russians invade Berlin by March, April 1945. There's a very good author out there by the name of David Stahl, S-T-A-H-E-L, who has written a number of books that I really think he's setting the standard for even going beyond David Glantz's treatment because while he looks at it in a granular fashion, he also looks at it from the objective campaign analysis and strategic and even grand strategic lens. And Stahel's contention, and I recommend his books highly, he's an Aussie. Stahel's contention is that the Russians not only won the war by 43, but that their Germans lost the war within six months of Barbarossa, especially in their retreat from Moscow in 1942. And Stahl makes a very convincing case that that was the time during World War II in which the Germans lost the war, and it took them more than three years to die as a nation at war. Those of you familiar with the Venona transcripts will know that after the war, as a result of transcriptions that were released about overt KGB activity, or in this case, NKV activity during World War II in the West and especially in the United States, showed that Harry Dexter White and Harry Hopkins, who were high muckety-mucks in the FDR administration, became virtual, not only Soviet ideologues, but I think that it was Harry Hopkins, the chief of staff to Red DR, who slept in the, uh, the White House in a, in a bedroom there, was FDR's closest confidant during the entire conflict, that not only was he an active Soviet agent, but he felt, even in his own writings and acknowledgments, that he was the Soviet Union's representative in the United States to ensure that they got everything that they asked for despite the fact that, and McMeekin shows this in spades throughout the book, Stalin and his nomenclature were not grateful at all and saw the Lend-Lease program as a way not only to gain power, to increase their ability to render the German army moot and, and defeated, but also a way to make the West weaker. And I think to a certain extent, that was successful. And as I mentioned earlier about the Chinese and the China being the main conflict for the Japanese, you have to remember that when it came to Lend-Lease for the Chinese, it came to a virtual standstill by 1943. And that when you look at the sheer numbers, the USSR received 50 to 100 times the amount that the Chinese did, in spite of the fact that the, of the Chinese and China being the largest contiguous theater of operations next to Japan, which was the singular war effort in the Pacific. It, it just makes you scratch your head. McMeekin writes, quote, The roseate glow of the good war has saved its victorious statesmen from the scrutiny applied to their World War I counterparts who led the men into the trenches. End of quote. You know, it was Roosevelt and, Ch and Churchill who, according to McMeekin, turned the conflict into Stalin's war. He even notes that Churchill's mercurial approach to statecraft and he criticizes Roosevelt for, and I would say it's Harry Hopkins and Harry Dexter White, who prioritize Stalin's needs for the war 
when he adopted his Germany first approach. By the way, a lot of this speculation, I'd mentioned the Venona transcripts, which, uh, which became popular in the 80s and 90s once they were released, and Harvey Clare, K-L-E-H-R, did some tremendous books on those transcripts. Because for instance, during World War II, the FBI apparently, being just as bungling and incompetent then as they are today, estimated there were a dozen or two Soviet agents in the country during the war. Well, that turns out not to be the case. As a result of the Venona transcripts, it seemed to be more than 500, but it was far more than that because what you had is from the 1930s until the 1940s, there was a very sophisticated technical and engineering espionage effort by Stalin and the Soviet Union to grab whatever they could in the West. They would actually send their emigres and even official state representatives to factories, industry complex, aviation complexes, whatever the case may be in the West, especially in America, and gather intelligence and bring back stuff. And their diplomatic pouches were chock full of technical design packages, engineering drawings, vellum after vellum, all of these technical and intellectual property secrets that they would abscond with from the United States and the West and bring back to the Soviet Union to try to ramp up their own production. I consider Meekin to be something of a mythbuster. What I really enjoy is that I think it was 2011, Russian Origins of the First World War. He wrote that book. He wrote a book on the Russian Revolution in an accident when the February weather suddenly turned warm and the crowds came out on the streets in Petrograd after the Germans in World War I had introduced the almost uh, communist-like bacillus of V.I. Lenin on an armored train and introduced it into the body politic of what would then become the USSR. McMeekin, he's a professor at Bard College, New York, and what he did for those previous books he does for these books concerning World War II. I want to offer you another quote from Sean McMeekin's book, Stalin's War, New History of World War II. Quote, the European war that broke out in September 1939, pitting Britain, France, and Poland against Germany, with the USSR claiming to be neutral, even though we know who met in the middle in September 1939 in Poland proper, did not have Hitler's planned or desired lineup of belligerents. He had sincerely believed that France and Britain would back down as they had done when he confronted them over Czechoslovakia in 1938. Nor did this war serve genuine French or British interests, as was made clear both in the dilatory approach to fighting these powers took and in the final reckoning six years later, which left the French and British empires in ruins and Poland under Soviet domination. But it was precisely the war that Stalin wanted. Look, I'm the last guy who's going to say that whatever plan was laid down years before is going to come to fruition by the master plan laid out then. But Stalin certainly had the foresight, the engines of war, the engines of production, as augmented by American and Western lend lease, not only to dominate the war from 1943 to 1945 on the Eurasian landmass, but also to turn around August 9th, 1945, and deal a tremendous blow to the Japanese. From August 9th until the 2nd of September, 1945, three weeks and three days, the Russians managed to amass a tremendous army against 
the Japanese, to include 1.6 million men against 1.1 million Japanese. 26,000 artillery pieces, 1,800 supporting artillery, nearly 6,000 tanks and self-propelled artillery, and nearly 5,400 aircraft. Now, the losses were just tremendous in this. The uh, Soviet and Mongolian losses were approximately 10,000. The Japanese sources say that up to 23,000 were killed and 40,000 wounded. The Soviet Mongolia claim is 83,000 killed. But with, as with most Soviet reporting, if you can't triangulate it with other official and non-official sources, you have to take it with a grain of salt. When you look at what armies were arrayed against each other, it doesn't dwarf Barbarossa where you had 140 German divisions in 1941 that struck across a very, I think it was approximately a 1,100 mile front that they struck across for Operation Barbarossa when Russia was invaded in 1941. So here you have a country, Russia, that not only bested the Germans by marching into Berlin a mere five months earlier, but they're able to traverse all of this combat power from that end of their massive country to the other end. Now they were augmenting combat power that was already in place at the border where Mongolia, Manchuria, and China are in order to mask this, but a tremendous victory for the Soviets. The Japanese didn't stand a chance. So in the end, is Sean McMeekin a revisionist? I think that he is, but I think uh, I happen to be a historical revisionist myself inspired by the likes of, of Murray Rothbard and such, who actually examined history through a lens that was quite a bit different from the received history that simply, simply relied on official archives. If you simply rely on official dispatches and archives from the Soviet Union, for instance, and the same thing can be said of Western sources, American sources, and British sources, a lot of glad-handing exaggeration of success and not a lot of navel-gazing about why defeat occurred or why errors and failures were made. Not a lot of that occurs. So as a result of that, what the revisionist historian does is they tend to go through the day and they tend to ask the questions, well, why did this happen the way it did? What caused it to happen? Why is there a consensus as far as it occurred this way, but that may not necessarily be the case? Thomas Kuhn, in his book on scientific revolutions in 1962, talked about in science that those innovations and paradigmatic shifts that would occur tended to be shifts that were a result of young Turks coming in, questioning the major and prevailing paradigms and shattering them with new evidence, new ways of looking at things, new perspectives, and examining evidence maybe in a little bit more of a even-handed fashion and not so nationalist or triumphalist, which is what painted a lot of 19th century history, for instance, and post-World War II history tended to suffer from that. So what I want to leave you with is this. When it comes to McMeekin's book, I recommend all of his books. And this book is just tremendous. If you disagree with it, though, be an active reader and interrogate it and question the sources. Read the footnotes and come to your own conclusions. But what you should do is shatter any glass cylinders of excellence you may have in your appreciation 
and assignations and apprehensions of how the world works, take a different tack, take a different prism, look at it from a different angle, and see if that evidence proves that whatever your long-held beliefs are or whatever you're exposed to in your workplace or academia, they may very well be wrong. So, McMeekin's book, Stalin's War, I recommend it highly. Please read it, and yes, it does deal with irregular warfare in a very peculiar sense with what I talked about earlier when it comes to Lend-Lease and the leveraging thereof, espionage, and what would occur from 1945 well, well into the 1980s with the besting of the Soviet satellite states between East and West. So thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, constructive criticism, send them my way. I would love to entertain your thoughts at cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out.